Get ready to rumble. Shilling Show Unleashed on the Seven Thunders Media Network. Former city councilor, husband, father, and community watchdog. Your host, Rob Schilling. Welcome to the Schilling Show Unleashed podcast. Remember, your direct support makes our show possible, and you can directly support this podcast by visiting shillingshow.com and then clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page to make a monthly contribution. We appreciate your support. The Schilling Show Unleashed podcast welcomes Carrie Grass, PhD, a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center and a scholar at the Institute for Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America. She's the founder and co-editor of the online women's magazine, Theology of Home, and author of the new book, The End of Women, How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. And Dr. Carrie Grass, thank you for joining us today on The Schilling Show Unleashed. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So you talk about the end of women, and this is not really a question we would have had to handle in in recent years, but in particular, the past couple of years, people don't seem to figure out what a woman is. They don't know when they're asked. We've seen the movie, and there's fear behind saying so, as we've seen a recent Supreme Court justice interviewed on the same topic. Mm-hmm. What's that all about? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question, and I, I think that's one of the things that drove me to write this book, was just really why this is so, such a challenge for us. And so... I think the answer that I found actually goes back much longer than the last few years, but really has been this sort of slow rolling movement in the culture that started really in the actually late 1700s with feminism. Um, But it's the the question that early feminists asked and that just continued to be asked was, how do we help women? The answer was not, how do we help women as women, biological needs and whatnot, but it was more, how do we help women become more like men? So it was really this prioritizing of the masculine over what it means to be feminine, especially things like motherhood, which I think now we sort of think of as kind of like getting a driver's license, like you can do it or you not do it, whatever you want, really the diminishment of that and a lot of aspects of the feminine, because of course, we're not just made to be biological mothers, but also psychological and spiritual mothers. So um, I think that's really what's behind it is this, like I said, this idealization of the masculine and um, trying to nudging women into this this idea that we're supposed to be like men, leaving us in this place where we just don't even know what it means to be a woman because we're supposed to deny all these aspects of our body that inform us of our womanhood and so on and so forth. And of course, the trans movement is just really the pinnacle of that. That's really the kind of the really the end game. Um, we hear them in the 70s feminists talking about trying to get rid of gender altogether. So that's what we're really seeing play out, you know, in front of our eyes every day now. I want to give some help to our male listeners who really probably have a very hard time because they appreciate <laughs> femininity and love women and don't understand why women would want to be like men. We don't get it. Help us with that. No, I think that's a great question. And that's one of the things I really wanted to do in my book. You know, men have been blamed for everything for the last 50 years. And I think that there's there's a lot of room to share it with women with what's happened. But part of what has happened is that most men and, and certainly women don't realize is just the amount of brainwashing that we have had as women. I can remember being a little girl and being encouraged to tussle with the boys. I mean, it's just always sort of this carrot in front of women is be better than the boys and ambition and 
you know, that lend itself then to narcissism and cynicism and, you know, all those other awful character traits that we've somehow developed in women. I think men are kind of in a no-win situation when it comes to feminism because women, feminists have instilled in us this idea that we, we need to be like men, but we also want men to change. And so there's this weird, like schizophrenic, I hate you, but I love you kind of dynamic going on. I think it's an incredible challenge that we face is just to sort of start bringing some healing and some common sense to this war between the sexes that's just only been aggravated through feminism instead of brought to a point where we can understand each other better and be more compassionate and empathetic and whatnot. Uh, and I think a lot of that is probably by design. I mean, that you could, the feminist movement in many ways is about power and control. So that's really what, what's driving it. And the best way to control men is just to get them to shut down completely because they feel like they can't win arguments. So um, this is really what we've seen happening over the last, certainly since second wave feminism, um, much more acutely over the last 50 years. We hear the term patriarchy a lot. It's in the title of your book. And so I want to get to the patriarchy because what's talked about today is very different than what you describe in the book. Some really horrible things that were done under the patriarchy as it existed previously. Patriarchy is one of those things that can be, it can have good values or bad values. I think we think of it in terms of the Bible is a great way to understand it, that, that sort of the, the biblical order that's been set up. You can also see it in, in the military. I mean, this is one of the gifts that men have is this capacity to create ruling structures from hierarchical structures. Going back to even the French Revolution, we see Mary Wollstonecraft, who's considered the godmother of, or godmother of feminism, really wanted to see those things torn down, along with Thomas Paine and others in the, in the, the movement trying to take down society's structures. That ball just kept rolling in, in terms of trying to get rid of, re, restructure society really was the goal and flatten and get rid of those aspects of kind of masculine gifts. The word patriarch itself, as used as a negative, actually came from Engels, who was the co-author with Marx. Marx had died and left some questions unanswered, and Engels picked up the role and, and started talking about this idea of patriarchy, and that's really where we get the, the usage that we know today. But there was a very specific effort uh, by Kate Millett and others who were part of the New Left, if we move fast forward to the 1970s, um, to really undermine the patriarch, which is also head of household, any kind of authority that men had. And her solution was really to just increase things like homosexuality, promiscuity, prostitution, you know, all these things that were not really that common back in the 60s and 70s. I mean, they were on the, the, the uptick, but now they're incredibly common. And we see, again, what have, has happened to fatherhood, what's happened to the family. So you can see this continual undermining of the family over and over and over again by just ignoring or erasing the, the gifts that men bring to the family, which is, of course, the building block of civilization, but then to the wider culture at large. I'd like to go to Betty Friedan and the book called The Feminine Mystique. Uh, people may remember that title. It was a while ago. But tell us about the book and about Betty Friedan. So this book came out in the 19, early 1960s. It sold somewhere around 3 million copies in the, the first couple of years of its publication. And Betty Friedan, you know, always talked about how she was just this homemaker and she didn't, and mom, and she didn't have any aspirations to do anything beyond that. She didn't really know about the women's movement until the 50s. Interestingly, there's a, a great book that's been written about her connection to the Communist Party. And, you know, the author of it, uh, Daniel Horowitz, I think is his name, 
was actually a friend of hers and asked her for her input on it because he thought it was just amazing that she had sort of survived the McCarthy era as a communist and wanted to see, you know, he thought it would actually make her more popular that she had sort of navigated McCarthyism and still came out on the other side as a very prolific communist and she didn't want anything to do with it. He was interested enough. He was able to use sort of open sources on her and has this amazing book that goes through her life and, and just how deeply involved she was with the communist effort. She was involved with this group called the Congress for American Women that was disbanded in either 1949 or 1950, so be- before McCarthy. In any event, we we can see that she's been heavily involved in communism. And so one of the things that Horowitz found in her journals was this quote from Engels about how women would never be free unless they, they left the home. So you can see how she's uses, she has a degree in psychology. She uses psychology to try to get women out of the home because that's really where she thought our freedom was. I mean, it's that same idea that's at in Auschwitz, you know, Arbeit macht free, that, that sign over gate at Auschwitz that says work will make you free. So this is what she was really intending to do, was trying to free women from what she called the comfortable concentration camp, it really liberate us, not realizing, of course, that there's incredible damage that, that is wrought with that. But that's not what she was thinking about and hadn't been thinking about things in that way. She just wanted to help women start thinking like Marxists. And I, I think that was really the, the biggest match um, led to second wave feminism, led to the opening of the door of second wave feminism, and really the influence of women like Angela Davis and Kate Millett, who were very involved in the new left and these liberal ideas that for them kind of paved the way to open the door for, for what it is that they were then later selling. One of the fascinating things was the attack on quote homemaking. Uh, we don't hear that anymore, but that was, that was actually considered to be an occupation when you were asked uh, as a woman back in the sixties and maybe a little bit into the seventies, what do you do? I'm a homemaker. Mm -hmm. So that term is, is gone now, but what happened? No, and that's exactly what happened. It was Betty Friedan is what happened, and she just made it really taboo. It's funny because all of the homemaking skills are, have come back into vogue, sourdough bread and gardening and knitting and crocheting, you know, all those things. Um, but no one's calling themselves a homemaker anymore um, because it sounds so dated and taboo, and we've been told that women who consider themselves a homemaker are probably, you know, a doormat. Um, and that's one of the amazing things that I think feminism has done is it's defined not only the women who agree with them, but it's also defined the women that disagree with them and painted them or me or us as doormats or overly submissive or ignorant or all these awful things that, you know, that we're, we're wearing our red bonnets and robes like the handmaid's tale because we've joined some fertility cult and, you know, all this craziness. But that's just how they've been that powerful that they define both sides of the argument with their own terms instead of with reality. It's interesting to see. It feels like homemaking is sort of coming back, that there is this resurgence that people are, are not nearly as afraid of it as they used to be. This book came out in 1963, mm-hmm. and it's it's taken this long for people to start, sort of start paying attention. Like maybe having a great home isn't such a bad thing. You know, not just a luxurious home, but a home that feels like a sanctuary and a, and a, a place where people are can grow and be nourished and comforted and live live out their lives among those that they're supposed to love the most. So I'd like to go next to Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine. And I remember when the term Ms. came in and boy, that was a social disruptor. People were so uncomfortable with it. Uh, Tell us about Gloria and her magazine. 
So Gloria is a really interesting character because she's still going strong. I mean, she's still very active in the movement. Not sure she's wearing her leather pants anymore, but she's very <laughs> much out there. Although a lot of young women that I've talked to have never heard of her, but she's still doing Vogue interviews with Meghan Markle and things like that. Yeah, I think she was just incredibly effective with Ms. Magazine in terms of creating this ethos that women just wanted to be a part of. And there's all kinds of, I mean, the three elements of feminism that I was able to identify from the almost the very beginning were free love, um, the smash, idea of smashing the patriarchy, and the occult. And I think that we see all of those elements woven into Ms. Magazine in various stages and various issues and whatnot. Even the very first one, the very first cover, I think has the goddess Callie on it, who is uh, like a man-eater or something. (laughs) I don't remember the details of that particular goddess, Hindu goddess. That's what they chose to put on the very first issue of it. So she's just been hugely, hugely influential in the whole movement and very attractive. She's very well-spoken. People find her very engaging. And I was really struck by was just, she can get away with saying some really ridiculous things and nobody fact checks her on these things. I mean, they're one of my favorite lines of hers is something about how she, um, Oh, about how all advanced cultures have free love and it's a sign of their advancement. She forgets to say like, that's what happens right before the culture you know, decays and extinguishes itself either through usually through suicide. You know, I don't think we can overstate the the influence that she's had on just everyday women in terms of the way that we think about ourselves and, and she's really the iconic, you know, independent woman the movement has made you know, we actually have a, a figure to look to instead of just sort of making it up as we go along. She's really embodied that, especially the way she talks about her abortions and how or at least one abortion, how if she'd had a baby, she would have earned her life and all of those different elements that she went through as a single independent woman in, in kind of a new way, sort of this this vanguard for the movement and showing us showing women how they, they ought to be living. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast continues in a moment with Carrie Gress. Associated Press award-winning journalist, Rob Schilling. Borderhawk.news is a one-stop shop with the latest news about immigration, nationalism, and globalism. The Borderhawk staff daily curates immigration news stories and in the fashion of the Drudge Report, updates the site with cutting-edge content and original first-class commentary. Borderhawk.news highlights national and international media reports, tweets, and nuggets buried in local news blurbs, polls, video clips, and policy research. Borderhawk is pro-legal immigration, pro-rule of law, but against an unsecure border as countless Americans have suffered violence at the hands of criminal illegal aliens. And an increasing number of Americans are concerned about how mass migration affects their daily life. Borderhawk.news will remain on the forefront of the immigration issue with a buffet of info to read, evaluate, and share. Bookmark Borderhawk.news. Add them on social media at Borderhawknews on Twitter. Community Watchdog. The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. We continue. The book is The End of Woman How Smashing the Patriarchy Has Destroyed Us. 
Carrie Gress, PhD, is our guest and the author of that book. I want to talk about a couple of cultural feminists. I'll just use that term. I don't know if it's correct in this instance, but there are two people that stick out from the 1970s era. One of them was Billie Jean King, and the other one was mm-hmm. Helen Reddy. Would you talk about the two of them and their influence on the feminist movement in America? It's interesting. I actually grew up playing tennis, and so I, <laughs> I saw a fair amount of... Billie Jean King. I don't really know that much about Helen Red. She was involved in. She had the song um, called I Am Woman, Hear Me Roar. And that oh, was a right. huge anthem in the 70s that's for right. for feminism. Yeah, well, I'm dating myself. But um, no, that, I mean, that's one of the things that's just amazing to me about the, the efficacy of the feminist movement is it wasn't just among intellectuals. It wasn't just among, you know, Kate Millett and her band of new left friends, it seeped out so deeply into the culture. It's, you know, it's now in magazines, it's in academia, it's in Hollywood, it's in, you know, the movie Barbie. We, I, I think a great argument can be made that, and I've made it at the Daily Wire, um, that this is just priming the pump for a new generation of feminists teaching us patriarchy is bad, men are bad, women, when they rule the world, everything, you know, goes smoothly. We have to just get men out of the way kind of thing, which is a major theme in the movie. So, yeah, I think it's amazing. You know, pop music, especially, that's just such an incredible avenue that they have used. And the remarkable thing to me is not how successful they've been their side promoting it, but just how unresponsive actually conservatives have been to this. Like, we haven't seen that these are actually important ways in which we speak to women. And that if we look at the landscape, like, do we have a lot of conservative pop artists? Do we have conservative magazine, fashion magazines, HGTV, you know, this, all these different ways in which women absorb content we've largely neglected because we sort of think they're fluffy and unimportant. We'd much rather be making rational arguments. I think that we're, we're missing the boat on that. I've actually written several books called Theology at Home, trying to sort of start filling backfilling that so that we can help women see you don't have to buy what the liberal culture is telling us that we we have a way to understand womanhood that's actually more compelling it's more beautiful it's more it's much richer and showing that with beautiful images and really great rich content i think we have a lot on offer and i think that it, that's one of the, the biggest tactical mistakes we've made is by completely neglecting that area of, of medium and reaching women there were some very prominent anti-feminists, and uh, you reference in your book the late Phyllis Schlafly, who I had the opportunity to interview uh, several times over the years. She remained a cultural warrior up until her passing. It was pretty remarkable. Yeah. But what was her influence over the years in pushing back? Yeah, no, I think she's um, obviously amazing. It's really interesting. I haven't dug into her work all, all that much, largely because I, a lot of it's so political and it just wasn't really yes. where I would always focus on. You know, one of the things that's interesting about her is that she, I, she was still trying to deftly maneuver getting rid of feminism. Feminism hadn't taken over everything yet. So she still had this glimmer of hope, like maybe we can steer the culture a different way. And I think that's one of the things that I've acknowledged and see in, in the world is that it's really triumphed. It really is incredibly powerful. It's led to the woke movement. You know, we see its tentacles everywhere. It's led to the trans movement. I have an advantage in light of the fact that I can just say, we just need to get rid of this. Like, this is not helping women. This is not efficacious. And, and that was one of the areas where Phyllis Schlafly was sort of stuck between a hard, rock and a hard spot. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's also really interesting. Like, why aren't there more people like Phyllis Schlafly? I think I know her, her niece, Suzanne Banker, is, is doing a lot of work. But, um, you know, a lot of it also is just it's hard because you don't get much of an audience because 
you're either ignored or vilified by by the left. So I, I think that's a, a real challenge that we have. We don't have, again, avenues. We don't have magazines to feature women in and, and that kind of thing the way that the left does, too. So she obviously was an incredible model, but she's also so vilified by the left. I just yes. watched that that series that was done on her last summer. I watched it when I was writing this book. Kate Blanchett plays her, and it's called, I'm trying to remember the title of it, Anyway, I'm sure people are like yelling at the podcast right now, <laughs> the name of it. But um, she's really portrayed as very vicious and manipulative and, you know, undermining kind of way. You know, by the end of the series, I was like, I just can't even take Phyllis Schlafly anymore because she's just painted in such a terrible light. So um, that that's the, also the hard part, too, is just getting people to understand like what she was really doing and what she really did, which was really on a lot of levels miraculous, what she was able to achieve from her home in St. Louis without, you know, she was an elected official or she wasn't a, a celebrity to begin with. So it's, it's amazing how effective she was. Carrie, you mentioned abortion and I want to go to Margaret Sanger and somehow she was able to subvert uh, one of the most innate parts of femininity, which was the care a mother has for her child into a movement where mm-hmm. mothers destroy their children. It's almost unthinkable, but let's get into yeah. Margaret Sanger's influence. So Margaret Sanger is fascinating because she, a lot like Elizabeth Cady Sand, started out really loving motherhood. And then uh, the more these two women got involved politically in, in their work, the less important it became. I think at one point she fled the country and left her children behind and is very involved in the left and all kinds of things. So, but yeah, her whole goal was really eugenics was a, a major part of her effort. She just thought that there were, there were too many children that were born from people that shouldn't be having children. And she was very upfront about this. And this is why she was such a big promoter of, of birth control was hugely influential in that movement and promotion of the pill. And, you know, I think what people don't realize is that because we have taken a, when we're using contraception or abortion, we really are taking away that most tender and precious you know, relationship between mother and child. And it also, you know, in many respects opens the door to homosexuality because of course the, the married couple who's contracepting is like, well, how is our sexual relationship any different than, you know, same sex couple? And I think that's certainly led itself to a lot of confusion, but yeah, that's a, a tremendous triumph to get women to the point where they see their child as an enemy instead of as their own, you know, flesh and blood that they're, tasked and responsible for caring for. And, and I think we forget too, you know, as you said, it's absolutely egregious and it gets more egregious when you realize just how massive the numbers are. I think that last year, the Gamar Care Institute said there were something like 72 or 73 million abortions worldwide, roughly somewhere between 60 and 65 million people that died period in the world. So we have, you know, roughly somewhere between five and 10 more million abortions happening around the world and people are dying of any other cause combined. I think when you start seeing the the numbers, just how big they are, how many abortions are happening, you begin to realize like this is, this is, you know, the deadliest ideology in all of human history when you see it on that scale. Somewhere in the afterlife, you've got, you know, Kate Millett is saying to Hitler, you know, hold my beer um, because she's been responsible for so swaying that, very fundamental relationship in ways that are were really unthinkable and unspeakable before before the feminist movement. 
Something you referred to throughout this interview, and I want to go now very specifically to the LGBTQ attack on feminism and these two movements, which are now at loggerheads, uh, primarily because yeah. of the trans issue and uh, female athletes being impeded upon. No, it's it's really remarkable to see in real time an ideology um, kind of unraveling at the top. You know, it's reached its pinnacle. It's gotten to this point where it's trying to get rid of gender altogether and just make it fluid and whatever you want. And in the meantime, women who have been feminists in the sense that they pro woman, they want to see women excel and do well are saying, what are you talking about? These just because a man puts on a dress and makeup doesn't make him a woman. Um, or he has this deep desire to be a woman, doesn't make him a woman. It's really interesting to watch how it's playing out. And again, you see very, very clearly the power tactics that are being used in it, who's, you know, there's a lot of virtue signaling and shunning or canceling or, you know, even physical abuse that I know Riley Gaines has experienced because she's not encouraging the trans women to be part of of female sports. So, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next several years, especially as the detransitioners are starting to speak up at the damage that's being done to their bodies such tender ages when they sh- there's no way they should be making these decisions that will render them sterile, presumably for the rest of their lives, unless technology can somehow restore, you know, what has or what's been taken away from them biologically. It's an amazing thing that again we're seeing in real time. Dr. Carrie Gress, you've done a wonderful job in in talking about this history of feminism and the attempt to smash the patriarchy. If people want to get a copy of The End of Woman, or if they want to follow your work online, because I know you're very prolific, where can they find you and where can they get the book? Yeah, uh, the best place to get the book is at my blog, theologyofhome.com. If people want a signed copy, you can certainly get it at the publisher Regnery or you know places like Amazon. But my work is also featured at my personal blog, carriegress.com. And that's where I usually post all the different articles that I'm writing around the blogosphere. Carrie Gress, you're doing very important work. And we thank you for joining us today on The Shilling Show on this podcast. Thanks so much for having me. That concludes another edition of The Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Visit us online at shillingshow.com where you can directly support this podcast by clicking on the Patreon banner at the top of the page and making a monthly donation. Your support is essential for the continuation of the Shilling Show Unleashed podcast. Until next time.